Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. Uh, I missed worshiping with you guys last week. I missed uh, praising the name of Jesus in song with you guys and, and opening up God's word and discussing what it means for us last week. So uh, it, it, it uh, is always painful. It hurts whenever I'm not here with you guys because I I feel like I'm missing out. I'm missing out on, on worshiping with you. And so, uh, I, but John did an excellent job, wherever John is. Uh, John did an excellent job last week proclaiming the word. So, uh, everyone give it up for John. If you, you know, give it up for John. You know, wonderful job proclaiming the truth of God's word. So, uh, so even when I'm not here, like God's word is still proclaimed. We still worship together. Uh, and, uh, but I missed out. So, uh, I, I missed you guys. I'm glad to be back this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus down to earth, that he, that he chose to add humanity to his deity, to, to come as a, a helpless, uh, humble, vulnerable child. God, that he, he came and he lived a perfect life, died on a cross, gave up his life for us, and rose again from the grave so that we could have eternal life. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the opportunity we have here in this Christmas season to celebrate Jesus, to, to worship him, to be reminded again how incredible it is that, that God added humanity to his deity, that the Son of God chose to come and to dwell among us to give us eternal life. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we pray that our minds would be drawn up to behold your glory, that our hearts would be lifted up to, to, to worship you and to celebrate you, God, that this morning in your word you would shape and mold us, you would, you would tweak our thinking and draw our minds to you. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were three primary offices that, uh, that people held. There were the prophets. These were the people that proclaimed the word of God. There were the priests. These were the people that regulated and facilitated the worship of God. And then there were the kings. These were the people who ruled the people of God. And those are the three primary offices that people held in the Old Testament. Early on in Christian history, in the early church, Christians started pointing to these three offices and realizing, hey, Jesus fills all three of these. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a priest. And Jesus is a king. And so they, they looked at those offices. And so throughout church history, it's been a common way to think about Jesus, is thinking about Jesus as a prophet, a priest, and a king, and how he fills all three of the Old Testament offices, how Jesus fully and finally culminates and brings together all three of those offices into himself. 
Uh, recently, there, there's been some pushback on using that terminology of prophet, priest, and king uh, to describe Jesus. Because what, what happens is we talk about those three things. Sometimes we can silo Jesus into three different distinct things that sometimes he's a prophet, sometimes he's a priest, sometimes he's a king. And people are worried that that, that might be the case if we refer to him as a prophet, priest, and king. That's why a contemporary theologian named Millard Erickson he instead likes to refer to the functions of Jesus, revealing, reconciling, and ruling. But even whatever terminology you use, that's still prophet, priest, and king, right? As long as we recognize that Jesus is all of those things at all time, that Jesus does all of those things in his ministry and perfectly and fully embodies all of those at once, it's a helpful way for us to think about Jesus. Jesus is a prophet, Jesus is a priest, and Jesus is a king. For our series in this this Christmas, this week, next week, and on Christmas Eve, that's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at Jesus as a prophet, Jesus as a priest, and Jesus as a king. And, th- and this is why this is important. This is why I want us to look at these three things. It's because in case you haven't noticed from the way that the, the room looks, but Christmas is almost here, right? And some of us are way behind on shopping for gifts, uh, and, and some of you maybe have all your shopping done. Some of you have none done, that's fine. Whatever, however many boxes you have left to purchase, Christmas is still less than two weeks away, right? It doesn't change that fact, right? Christmas is almost here. And undoubtedly, within the next two weeks, you're going to hear Christians use a cliche phrase. Some, some Christian is going to tell you or remind you of this in a cliche phrase. You probably heard it. You could probably say it with me if you wanted. Jesus is the reason for the season, right? You, within the next two weeks, you're going to hear a Christian say that. Because it's catchy, it's memorable, it's true, it can fit on the side of a building. Like, it's, it is, it's, it's a, a phrase that we hear and throw around a lot during the Christmas season because it reminds us that Christmas is ultimately all about the birth of Jesus. What we're celebrating in Christmas as Christians is the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born. Uh, it probably wasn't born in December, but this is the time we celebrate, right? This is the one, a yearly reminder that we celebrate that Jesus Christ was born. It's a wonderful uh, reminder, a wonderful testament. And so Jesus is the reason for the season. But here's the thing. If we don't have the right view of Jesus, then celebrating his birth is irrelevant. All right, if we don't know who Jesus is, if we don't have an accurate understanding of who this person Jesus is, if we don't know that, then it doesn't matter if we celebrate his birth or not. It's no different than celebrating Santa Claus, right? Like if you don't know the right Jesus, if you don't have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is, then celebrating his birth doesn't matter at all. And so what I want us to do this Christmas season is not just to remember that Jesus was born. I want us to know who Jesus is. I want us to celebrate the Jesus who was born. I want us to understand why it's such a big deal that Jesus Christ was born and why it's something worth celebrating. So this week, we're going to start looking at Jesus as a prophet, priest, and king. By by this week, looking at Jesus as a prophet. He was a prophet. And we're going to start, uh, and what I hope you'll see this morning, is what I hope you'll see this morning, that since Jesus is a prophet, we should honor his work, and respond to his message. If Jesus is really a prophet, if Jesus really embodies and fulfills the role and the office of prophet that we see in the Old Testament, which he does, which I hope you'll see this morning, but if he really does fill that office, if he really is a prophet, then we should honor his work. We should give him glory and honor for the work that he does, and we should listen to what he has to say. We should should respond to the message that he proclaims. 
So this morning, we're going to begin uh, in looking at Jesus as a prophet. We're going to begin by looking at the Old Testament prophets. In order to understand the fact that Jesus is a prophet, we have to understand what the Old Testament prophets were and what they did. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, our fathers by the prophets. So in the Old Testament, God revealed himself, God spoke through the prophets. That's what the office of the prophets did. When the Old Testament prophets, what they did is they spoke, they communicated from God to his people. That's what the prophets did. And primarily, this, these are the two things that the prophets did as they spoke. They revealed the character of God, and they revealed the plan of God. So we're going to look at that first. They revealed the character of God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in our series on Scripture. But you and I cannot just intuitively figure out the character of God. We can't just look at nature and figure out what God is like. Or we, get a, we get a few glimpses into the nature of God when we look at creation, right? We can figure out that God is powerful. He created the universe, right? So we can see that we serve a powerful God. We can figure out that God is wise and as we look at how intricately detailed and how wonderfully everything works together in creation. So we can understand that God is wise. We can see that God is creative, that God has a, an eye for beauty because he has made the wonderfully diverse world and universe that we, that we live in. So we see that, that God is creative, that we can also see that God is moral, right? There's, there's some sense of right and wrong. There's some sense of righteousness and justice with God because, because we live in a universe and, and we as people have an understanding that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And so in creation, we get, we get bits and pieces of the nature of God, but we cannot figure out God's character. Nature itself, creation itself, does not tell us the character of God. All, for all we know, if we look at creation, God could be some distant clockmaker, right? He made the clock, he wound it up, and he walks away and has nothing to do with his creation. That's for all we know, based on creation, that's what God could be like. Or maybe, for all we know, just looking at creation, God could be an angry God who enjoys watching people suffer. For all we know, looking at creation, God could be a God who is filled with wrath, and all he has is wrath that needs to be appeased by his people. Or, by looking at creation, for all we know, God could be a God who's completely a God of love, who doesn't hold anybody accountable for anything that they do wrong, for any sin, and he's just completely a God of love who wants to have all people to himself. And I, and I bring all of those up because those are all views of God that people have come, that have come to just by looking at creation. There's nothing that in creation that can perfectly and clearly reveal to us the character of God. God has to tell us what he's like. And the way that God tells us what he's like in the Old Testament is through the prophets. God revealed his character to us in the Old Testament through the prophets. Think about the, the number one prophet in the Old Testament, like the, the quintessential prophet, the guy that people look to as the standard when it comes to prophets in the Old Testament, Moses. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses gives the Israelites the, the ten, what we call the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, verse 5, what Moses says is that God is a jealous God. Which means that God cannot stand when people worship created things instead of him. Right? He's God, nothing else is God. And so he doesn't want anybody to worship anything else other than him because he's the only one worthy of worship and honor and praise. So, so we see bits and pieces of the character of God. Moses tells us God is a, a jealous God. 
Right? Isaiah chapter 45, the prophet Isaiah tells us that God isn't a God who is, who's just far off, but actually God is near. He can be found. He can be seen if we seek for him. God, God is with us. He is, he is near to us. He also tells us in Isaiah chapter 30 that, that God holds people accountable for the things that they do wrong. God is a God of justice. But he also tells us in Isaiah chapter 30 that God is a God of grace and love and kindness and mercy. The prophet Nahum tells us in Nahum chapter 1 that God is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So we get this picture of God as being, as being good and sturdy and, and there protecting his people. We get this, that's colorful, we get this picture of who, of who God is, right? This little glimpse into the character and the nature of God through the prophet Nahum, but, but he goes on. The prophet Nahum says God is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, and he continues and says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his enemies and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So not only is God good and a stronghold for his people, he also doesn't tolerate sin, doesn't tolerate wickedness, and will make a complete end of his enemies. We get glimpses and pieces of the character of God from the Old Testament prophets. As you read the Old Testament prophets, we get to see more and more and more about who God is and what he's like. The Old Testament prophets revealed the character of God. Think of like a a mural being painted by a team of artists. Every artist picks a little piece of the painting that he's passionate about, that that he's excited about, that's really uh, relevant to where he is in life, and he, he paints a little piece of that mural. And they all together are painting. And when you take a step back, you look at one great picture that is being painted. That's like the Old Testament prophets who are all painting a glimpse into the character of God. They're all giving us bits and pieces. And as we take a step back and we look at the Old Testament, we see a a, a beautiful picture of who God is and what he's like. The Old Testament prophets revealed the character of God. But they didn't just reveal the character of God. They also revealed the plan of God. They didn't just tell us what God's like, they told us what God does. And they started out by talking about sin, right? The Old Testament prophets exposed sin in the lives of the people around them. This is, I don't know about you, but this is what I think of when I think of a prophet, Right? When I think of the Old Testament prophets, I think of a guy who's like shaking his fist at the kings and, and denouncing the sin in, in, in their world. Like that's, that's what we think of, uh, at least what I think of. I don't know. You may think I'm crazy, but that's what I think of when I think of Old Testament prophets is, is this guy who's denouncing and exposing sin in the world. And that's definitely what the prophets did. Right? Each and every prophet in the Old Testament, is pointing out the things that the, that the Israelites are doing wrong. They're pointing out the, the ways that, that they're sinning against God, the things that they're doing that are at odds with God's character. They're pointing out and exposing all of these sins. I think of the prophet Amos in chapter 2. Amos is a wonderfully written book, and it's by a shepherd. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's amazing how wonderfully written the book is. Uh, but throughout Amos chapter 1 and into chapter 2, the writer, uh, the prophet, is, says, For three transgressions of this country and for four, God will, not, uh, God will, God will bring about destruction. And so, so he says, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, and, and he tells them the destruction that's going to come. Or three transgressions for uh, uh, Edom and for four, and it tells them about the destruction that's going to come. And so, so the Israelites are listening to this and saying, yeah, look at the sin of the people around us. God's going to bring destruction and calamity on the nations that we hate. And they're all celebrating and rejoicing. And then Amos says, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, God's going to bring about destruction. And then he goes on to say, for three transgressions of Israel, 
and for four, God's going to bring about destruction. And so what Amos is doing there is he's exposing the sin in Israel. He is pointing out the things that the Israelites are doing that do not bring God glory and honor and praise. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Think of the prophet that goes into with, with David after the sin of David and Bathsheba. And the, the prophet goes in and, and he points out David's sin and says, this is what you're doing that is not honoring and glorifying to God. This is what the Old Testament prophets did. They exposed sin. And not only did they expose sin, but they talked about the consequences for sin. Right? They didn't just say, these are the things that you're doing poorly, but they also said, this is what's going to happen to you if you keep doing this. Right? The prophet Habakkuk, was ta- uh, the whole book of Habakkuk is about the idea that God is going to raise up the Babylonians to destroy the people of Israel because they are continuing in their sin and their brokenness. So the prophets are exposing the sin around them and they're pointing out the consequences of those sins that, that God is going to hold them accountable for their sinfulness and their rebellion. But not only do they expose the sin of the people around them and talk about its consequences, they also depict redemption. They paint a picture of reconciliation. They show what it, what it looks like for man and God to be reunited and restored. Throughout the Old Testament, they, they are looking forward to this wonderful day where there's going to be redemption and restoration for God's people. In Isaiah chapter 30, there's this beautiful picture you have to know the context in Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah has given the people of Israel this, this tongue lashing. Like he, has, he has revealed the sin of the people of Israel. He has called them rebellious and wicked people. He has laid all of their sin before them. And he has talked about the judgment that God is going to bring on his people, the wrath that is coming on the Israelites. But in Isaiah chapter 30, Isaiah says this in verse 18, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher." So this is beautiful. In the middle of this, 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 uh, this prophecy where Isaiah is denouncing sin, he's exposing the sin in Israel, and he's talking about the judgment that's coming, he paints this wonderful picture of redemption and reconciliation. This future picture where God and man will be restored, and where, where, where man will have peace with God. You can, you can read the Old Testament and it sounds really harsh and mean because time after time after time the prophets are exposing the sin of the people and they're, they're talking about the judgment of God. But, but you're, if that's all you get out of it, you're missing some major pieces of the prophecies. right? Through time and again, not only do the prophets talk about the judgment and expose sin, they also paint a picture of what it looks like for man to be redeemed. They paint this wonderful illustration of what it looks like for man to have peace with God. And they, they don't have the way to it yet. It's always a future vision that there's going to be a day where man is going to have peace with God. There's going to be a day where the wolf lies down with the lamb and where children can play around snake holes and not get bitten. Right? There's, there's going to be a day where people are going to have peace with God and they paint this wonderful picture of reconciliation and redemption where man is made right with God, but, but they don't have that today. But they're looking forward to it. 
And then, without fail, the prophets call the people to repent. They expose the sin in the world. They, they show them what, what the consequences of that sin is. They paint this wonderful picture of what redemption and reconciliation looks like, and then they call people to repent. Hosea ends his book in Hosea chapter 14. And the whole last section of Hosea's book, the prophet Hosea says, guys, turn to the Lord. Don't turn away from him. Don't, don't harden your hearts against him, but, but turn to the Lord. Return and repent, and God will give you forgiveness and love. The very next book of the Bible, the prophet Joel, he says, rend, not, rend your hearts and not your garments, but, but consecrate a fast, make a feast, put on sackcloth, repent of your sin, turn from your brokenness, from your sinfulness, and turn to the Lord. Every Old Testament prophet calls for a response. Like the, Their message naturally leads to a response. They expose the sin and the brokenness in their world and the judgment that's coming, and then they paint this picture of redemption. Like The natural thing should be to want people to respond to that by repenting of their sin and moving towards reconciliation, to, to turn away from the things that are broken, the things that are leading to judgment in their nation, and to turn towards the Lord. That is the natural way that you should respond to the message of the prophets. Right? And so time and again in the Old Testament, the prophets say, guys, repent. Turn to the Lord. Get rid of your sin. Lay it all down. The, the word repent means to change your mind or to, to turn. And really what that's saying is to, to, to change your mind about, what, about your sin and to change your mind about who God is. And, and instead of desiring sin, instead of clinging to your sin, letting it go and turning to the Lord. Time and again, the Old Testament prophets say repent, 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 turn to the Lord in light of the sin that has been exposed and laid bare in the words of the prophets, in light of the judgment that's coming, in light of the, the beautiful plan of reconciliation and redemption that is available, repent and turn to the Lord. You see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament prophets. They reveal the character of God and they reveal the plan of God by exposing sin, exposing judgment, calling for repentance. Jesus fulfills the office of prophet better than anybody ever did. We see, if you look closely, the life and the ministry of Jesus fulfills all of those different aspects. Notice what it says back in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the idea is that, that God used to speak through the prophets. The prophets used to be the ones that did this job, that communicated these things. But now God has spoken through his Son. Now there is a better prophet, and it's Jesus. The Old Testament actually looks forward to this event. So keep your finger here. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is uh, the book of Deuteronomy written uh, by Moses. Again, kind of the, the prophet in the Old Testament, right? Like the, the guy that everyone else is trying to measure up against. Right? This is the one, when you think of prophets in the Old Testament, this is the guy you should think of at the number, like the top of the list. This guy is number one. 
He, he is about as perfect of a prophet in the Old Testament as you can get. And this is what the prophet Moses says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15, it says, uh, Moses is speaking, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he speaks in my name, I will, my, I will myself require it of him. So the Old Testament actually looks forward to a day when a, a prophet is going to rise, where God is going to raise up a better Moses, a, a new prophet who's going to take the place of Moses and be a better Moses. Muslims actually point to this passage and say, see, uh, Muhammad is in the Bible. And they'll point to this passage of Deuteronomy 18 and see God is going to raise up for a prophet. Muhammad is that prophet. That's what Muslims will point to in Deuteronomy 18. But the problem for Muslims is that uh, the prophet that was prophesied here in Deuteronomy 18 came 600 years before Muhammad was born. And he was already on the scene. He already came around. In Acts chapter 2, uh, uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, he points to this passage in Deuteronomy 18 and says, This has been fulfilled. Jesus is the prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the prophet who has come and is the better prophet that we have been looking forward to. Jesus fulfills the office of prophet, what we see in Deuteronomy 18. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 2. In the last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is a prophet. He fulfills that office and that role. And like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus revealed the character of God. He reveals the character of God. And he reveals the plan of God. He reveals the character of God. Look with me in verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he communicates and reveals the character of God. But he doesn't reveal the character of God in the same way that the Old Testament prophets did. Because all the Old Testament prophets could do is tell people what God is like. All they could do is, is paint a verbal picture of who God is and what he's like. Jesus, on the other hand, is God. And so Jesus could perfectly communicate who God is and what he's like. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1. He is the perfect imprint, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature here in Hebrews chapter 1. The, uh, John the apostle in John chapter 1, John says that, that we have beheld the glory of Jesus in the same way that we can behold the glory of the Father. Because we have seen Jesus, we can see the Father. Jesus perfectly communicates the character of God because he perfectly embodies the character of God. If you look at Jesus, you see the Father. If you look at who Jesus is and what he's like, you can see the character of the Father. Think about a, a three-dimensional uh, sphere. 
God, his character, his nature is like a three-dimensional sphere. You and I think of us as two-dimensional beings, right? We have the X and Y, but we cannot fully grasp a three-dimensional sphere as two-dimensional beings. We don't have that third plane. Like, we cannot fully grasp who God is. We cannot understand the character and the nature of God. He is infinitely superior to us. He is infinitely mightier than us. He is, he is far better than we can even begin to fully grasp. So we cannot fully grasp the character of God. And so God has to communicate to himself, uh, communicate himself to us in, a, in like a circle, right? Two-dimensional circle. What the Old Testament prophets do is they paint that picture of Jesus, uh, paint that picture of God, the character of God. We can see in general what God is like and who he is, but we don't get the fullness of who God is because we can't begin to grasp and fully understand it. But Jesus doesn't communicate that way. He doesn't paint the picture. He doesn't continue to draw out the circle. Jesus is the sphere, Right? Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. Jesus perfectly and fully embodies the character of God. So if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. If you want to know the character and the nature of God, all you have to do is behold the glory of Jesus, and he will reveal the glory of the Father. Jesus perfectly reveals the character of God. He is far superior and better than any prophet of the Old Testament. Because he doesn't just tell us what God's like. He is God. He shows us in his life and his character exactly who God is and exactly what he's like. He goes on, he, he doesn't just reveal the character of God, he also reveals the plan of God. And he reveals it in the same way that the Old Testament prophets revealed it. Jesus exposes sin in the world. You look at the ministry of Jesus, you're not going to get very far without finding passages of Jesus exposing sin in the people around him. We talk about Jesus as, as this loving, uh, loving person. Uh, some people depict Jesus as this like 1960s flower child, right? Like, like we get this image of Jesus that he's a, he's a pacifist and completely loving and, and never judgmental and never, never harsh. Uh, and like that's, that's the image of Jesus we get sometimes. But, but you don't get very far in the New Testament without seeing Jesus calling out sin in people's lives. Right? Matthew chapters, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is what we call the, the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And the whole idea of Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is that people are following rules. People are trying to, to earn God's favor by checking off boxes and doing all of the right things. And Jesus says, hey, it's great that you're following rules, but the standard's actually up here and you're missing it. Right? Jesus is, is exposing and calling out the sinfulness and the brokenness in the people around him. Matthew 23, one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the people who have it all together, the religious leaders, the one you think are righteous and right. And he's talking to them and says, hey guys, you're just a whitewashed tomb, right? You look good on the outside. You are clean. You've been pressure washed. Like you, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's nothing but death. Like Jesus exposes the sin in the people around him. And then he talks about the consequences of that sin. Jesus talks about hell a lot. Jesus talks about the fact that there is an outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus talks about people being sent away from the Father. He talks about a final judgment. He holds people accountable for their sin. He exposes sin and says there is a hell. And if you continue in your sin, you continue in your rebellion against God, you will spend forever separated from God in hell. Jesus exposes the sin 
and he exposes the consequences of the sin. But he doesn't just depict the reconciliation that's available. He doesn't just tell us about the redemption that's available. Jesus actually is the plan of redemption. He actually is the plan of reconciliation. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We see over and over again in the message of Jesus that he is the plan of redemption. He is the way to have eternal life. He is the way of reconciliation, the way that the prophets looked forward to, the the one the prophets were waiting for to bring about redemption and, and peace with God. Jesus is the plan. He is the way to be restored. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way for us to come to the Father. By his perfect life and his death, on a cross in his resurrection. He made a way for us to have forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled with God, to have peace with God. He doesn't just tell us that eternal life is available. He is the way to eternal life. He doesn't just, just show us that, hey, there's a, there's a nice future for you in heaven that God has planned. He tells us he is the way to that eternal life that's available. And then he does the same thing that the Old Testament prophets do. He calls for a response. He calls people to repent. Mark chapter 1, Jesus tells, uh, he's speaking to a crowd and he says, Repent, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. Elsewhere, Jesus says that this, this is the work of God. That you believe in the one whom he sent. That you repent of your sin and you turn and you trust in Jesus. So in his life and ministry, Jesus exposes the sin in the world around us. He, he talks about hell. He shows us the, the, our separation from God. And that he shows us that our sin is utterly sinful, that we fall desperately short of God's standard of perfection. But he tells us that he is the way to be restored. He is the way to eternal life. And he calls people to trust in him. He calls people to turn from their sin, to let go of their brokenness, to stop and quit their rebellion and to turn to him with faith. That's the message of Jesus. And that's the message that Jesus proclaims. That's why he is a better prophet than any of the Old Testament prophets ever could be. Because he reveals God's character better than any of them ever could. Because he is God. And he reveals God's plan better than any of them ever could. Because he doesn't just tell us what God is doing. He is the physical embodiment of what God is doing. He is the redemption, and the eternal life that's available. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if Jesus is a prophet like the Old Testament prophets, but even better, then we need to treat him like the Old Testament prophets, but even better. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, is talking about Moses. And the the Jews, they love Moses. Moses, they glorify him, they honor him, not as a god, but, but they give him praise because of his work, because of what he did. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So as great as Moses is, as much as we should honor him for the work that he did, the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is worthy of glory and honor and praise. 
Jesus is the one we should worship because as great as the prophets were, Jesus is better. As great as the prophets were at communicating God, Jesus is God. As great as the prophets were at communicating the plan of God, Jesus is the plan of redemption. So Jesus is worthy of all our glory and honor and praise. As people who hear the message of Jesus, as people who interact with Christ, we need to lift him up and behold his glory. We need to be people that honor him and glorify him and bring him the praise and honor that he's due. And on top of that, as people who hear the message of Christ, as people who, who see the character of God in Jesus and, and hear the plan of redemption in Christ, we need to respond to the message. This is a message that demands a response. Not responding is a response, right? Choosing not to respond in any way to the message of Jesus, not responding in any way to the character of God and the plan of redemption in Jesus Christ, that is a statement in itself. It's saying that you don't want anything to do with it. You can respond giving lip service to Jesus. You can respond in a, in a kind-hearted way and say, that's great, that's good for you, it works for you, that's nice that, that Jesus did that. But, but that's not the response that Jesus is looking for. What Jesus is calling every single one of us to do is to repent of our sin and to turn and place our faith and hope and trust in Jesus. What he's calling us to do is to recognize that our sin is utterly sinful. That, that we are broken and in and, and rebellion against God. And if we continue in that path, we will spend forever separated from God in hell. But that God made a way for us to be redeemed. He made a way for us to have peace with him. And it's in Jesus. And if we turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus, we can have eternal life. We have to respond to the message. You can respond however you want. You can respond with disdain. You can respond by rejecting Jesus. You can respond with a lighthearted affirmation. But the response that this message requires, the, respond, the proper response, is to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. This morning, some of you here need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for the very first time. Some of you have never placed your faith and hope in Jesus, and you are lost and dead in your sins. You do not know the hope of eternal life that's in Jesus Christ. In just a second, we're going to pray, then we're going to sing. While we're singing, I'm going to be standing right here. If that's you and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I'd love for you to come up here. I'd love to pray with you and then talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. We also have people in the back. If you don't want to come up here, if that's nerve-wracking for you, you can go to the back. We would love to be people who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus, to place your faith and your hope and your trust in. This morning, respond to the message that Jesus is proclaiming. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, notice and see the character of God in Jesus and, and worship him and praise him as he's due. We all have too low a view of Jesus. I don't care how high your view of Jesus is, it's too low because you will never give him the glory and the honor and praise that he's due. So this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, elevate your view of Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and bring him the praise and the glory and the honor that he's due, because he's not just a prophet. He's a better one. He's not just a guy who reveals the character of God. He is God. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to be born, to, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, and to rise from the grave for our salvation. 
God, as we, as we begin to celebrate the, the Christmas season, as we, as we reflect on the fact that Jesus is the reason that we celebrate this holiday, God, I, I pray that you would draw our mind up to you, that we would, we would elevate our view of Jesus and bring him the worship and honor and praise that he's due. God, I pray this morning for anyone here who does not know you, anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus, God, I pray this morning they would respond to the message that Jesus is proclaiming. That this morning they would recognize their sinfulness. They would turn and put their faith and hope and trust in you. Father, let this morning be the morning that they respond. We love you and praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.